we are so excited about today's show. We have some very exciting guests. Uh, I want to introduce you. Joining us now is the director of Lucky, Natasha Kermani. Hey. Hey. And the writer and star of Lucky, Bria Grant. Hi. Hi. Thank you guys so much for chatting with us today. We are huge fans of Lucky and are genuinely thrilled to talk about it with you both. Um, so, so thank you. Yeah. So how are you guys? How is quarantine treating you? <laughs> is that a loaded question to start off with? I'm sorry. <laughs> loaded. Um, it's, you know, we're, we're still in lockdown here in Los Angeles, but mm-hmm. telling people it's been such a partial lockdown. We've never like, I don't know, Natasha, if you feel the same way, but I feel like we never fully went into like a serious, it's like lockdown-ish. Um, For a year. It's yeah. been right. that for a year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So not not a shining example of how to get it done here in LA. But um <laughs> yeah, I think we're hitting we're hit you know, I, I'm very used to Zoom meetings now. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> getting into a flow, the new reality is is very much here. So uh, how how are you guys? Yeah, we're pretty good. I'm in Northern California. Um, so we also are like sort of locked down. It's sort of choose your own adventure. And a lot of people are choosing the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very mm-hmm. true. <laughs> but I do, I personally, and this, I feel like we're getting close to the end of the light of the tunnel. And I wanted to know for you guys, like if you're feeling that and if how that's sort of affecting the way you're maybe approaching like upcoming projects? Do you feel like you can finally like get started or where are you guys at with that? Honestly, I feel like there was a real turning point after January 20th. Um, Mm, I I don't know if you guys felt that, but. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, spiritually, of course, like having the demon uh, gone, be gone Mm -hmm. from uh, from D.C. was great. But I I feel like people were kind of holding their breath. Um, And then, of course, January 6th was crazy. So, um, I mean, I guess maybe I'm a news junkie. So I felt that, (laughs) um, you know, kind of deeply. But I I do feel like, um, you know, with the combination of the new administration, and, you know, hopefully good news coming with the vaccine or, or some semblance of good news, um, whatever the version of good news is. Yeah. <laughs> it really is a sliding scale these days. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel people opening up. I know um, for myself, there's definitely been a little bit more um, movement, right? Like the wheels are starting to turn and, and you know, think people are trying, they're really trying to... Um, you know, get get things back in a in a safe way. Um, obviously, that's mm-hmm. extremely important. Is that we do this in a consci- conscientious and safe way? So, um, yes, slowly emerging <laughs> from that's great. Yeah, <laughs> from hibernation. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely awesome. That's great. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because you're you definitely have a job where it's you got to be face to face with people. <laughs> so true. it's, it's just really yeah. complicated. I mean, Bria can speak as an actor, um, you know, for them being on set, they're really the most vulnerable um, mm-hmm. people in a lot of ways. But I, but I have to say, I also have to speak up for crew. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they're especially in indie and, and so much of horror is in the indie space. Uh, I saw a lot of very disturbing choices being made um, over mm-hmm. the last year mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just really put, you know, in the way that this pandemic is really exposing, um, you know, economic inequality and, and just how this is so different for different different people in our in our nation. Similar thing is happening in the industry where, 
you know, there's, we just really have to be aware that, you know, actors and crew, you know, these people yeah. are, 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 are putting themselves at risk and for what. So I just, you know, for me, safety is always important. And um, it's just really put it into stark relief, you know, th that we um, cannot sacrifice the safety of our cast and crew. So that's yeah. my spiel. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm. I think that's so important. And you're right. Like I have friends who are actors and I see photos of them on set. And I'm like, what you, baby, what is you doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, fortunately, you guys got to do Lucky long before all of this stuff started, mm -hmm. which um, it, it kind of brings me to my first question, which is, so some people who were lucky or were uh, lucky enough to see it in festivals or like myself, I got to see it originally when Shudder did the sneak preview. On oh, cool. Halloween. Yeah. It was really fun. Um, but now we're finally getting close to it, reaching a broad audience. And I want to know how each of you guys are feeling about that. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's yeah, a yeah. weird, I, I mean, it's definitely been a strange year um, <laughs> because <laughs> it was almost, almost uh, a year ago, about a year ago, Natasha and I were sitting at a, a, a restaurant kind of celebrating, talking about our plans for going to South by Southwest and, getting excited about it. And then we got the news that South by Southwest was not happening. And we went immediately to a bar uh, because we <laughs> to figure out that, yeah. that was what we did. Cause we were like, Oh crap. And it, even at that moment uh, we were like, well, you know, maybe we'll get to go to like festivals later this year. Like we'll get to go to Sitges. We'll get to go to Fantasia, like something like that. We'll get to celebrate, even though we don't get to celebrate here. And obviously none of the, we didn't go anywhere um, because you know, the, none of these things happened in person. The world imploded. Yeah. Right. And, and I think, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's a strange, like there's a bit of, I mean, Natasha, I don't know if you feel the same way, but there's a little bit of bittersweetness to me to it because like, I want the movie out there in the world. But mm -hmm. I think the thing about the festivals, like as much as you, it's like important for indie films to go to festivals because it helps us to get attention when we don't have, you know, any sort of, juggernaut advertising PR right. team that like, you know, the studios movies have. Um, but it's also just a way to celebrate because you're so busy when you're making these things and you're so try trying so hard to get it made. And you're basically mm -hmm. just like bending over backwards and, and hustling and trying to, you know, it's, it's not easy to make a movie like this. Um, and just, I think we would have really benefited from the celebration that we didn't get to have. Um, yeah. So that, that yeah. has been a bit of a, a, a weird uh, realization that it's that it's coming out and but, but it's also good because you know you want it out there in the world and I think Shutter is uh just a really wonderful place for us to live yeah, yeah it's the perfect home you know I was thinking the other day Bria that um us going out and drinking away our sorrows was probably the last time I was in like a bar oh wow because <laughs> oh, wow. that was I think a few days a few days later was like when Tom Hanks got sick and everybody was like oh shit this, right. is, this is real. Right. Um, yeah, I agree completely with Bria. I think festivals are really for the filmmakers. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we, 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 we did miss out on that. But at the same time, you know, um, what this allows is more one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I think Bria and I have been really lucky haha, to um, <laughs> <laughs> speak with a, with, with a lot of people, a lot of women who were able to catch the film at a festival or, or at the screening and just being able to speak with them, you know, either um, via social media or on Zoom or whatever it might be. Um, that one-on-one -on -one has been kind of great and is very different from, you know, the whirlwind of a, like a festival and you're yeah. at bars and it's all crazy. So it's a much calmer um 
uh, more sort of like sedate <laughs> um, intimate. experience. <laughs> intimate, yeah, exactly. But but no, we're thrilled. We're thrilled. We made this movie. It happened pretty quickly. I read the script in. Um, let's see. It was like late 2018. We were filming in June of 2019, and wow. then of course we were supposed to premiere in March of 2020 at South by. So wow. that's, wow, that's really fast, fast for a movie. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> so we're very happy. We're very happy. That's great. That's great. So I'd love to get a little bit about the origin story of this movie. So Bria, first, how did this story come about for you? And then Natasha, how did you come on board? What made you Mm -hmm. want to do this movie? Uh, Yeah, I mean, the movie came from a personal experience in my life dealing with a stalker. and, And not as much that as it was about sharing that experience with other women and talking to other women about their experiences and realizing through that process that uh, every woman that I know uh, has some sort of story to tell, some sort of experience with violence um, or if not with violence, then at the very least like being scared at some moment um, and feeling unsafe in the world. And so I worked on the script for um, a few years, but it, in some ways it was catharsis for me. I feel like anytime anybody asks that question, I should be like, get ready for darkness because it's, um, <laughs> it's such a dark answer. Um, uh, and, and, uh, but it is truth. And I think we're living in this yeah. time where women are being much more open about it. And I'm not a person who, uh, talks a lot about that kind of stuff maybe on my social media or um, uh, even among, you know, people I don't know very well. But I am a person who uses art uh, as a form of catharsis. So I Mm -hmm. I think for me it was a way to kind of work through this experience uh, uh, with this person and with uh, the – uh, the the justice system and yeah. with other women and all of these experiences I was having. So, uh, and then I just kind of took it from there. And I, I mean, I like horror movies. So obviously like it made sense to make it a, horror, <laughs> it's a horrific situation. And then sure. I just kind of turn it on its head and take all of these things that I felt like were already extreme and just make them way more extreme. Yeah. I feel like you can really feel that personal experience when you watch the movie. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, as someone who maybe didn't choose typically in your personal life to like have these kind of conversations to now sort of have this project out there that brings them up repeatedly. How has that experience been for you? Has it been challenging or cathartic on its own? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Natasha's, I mean, she, we, we've talked a little bit about this and I, I, I mean, anyone who knows me knows that I'm probably not the first person who's going to be comfortable talking about this. And I okay. even had, you know, and I talked to my therapist about it and I was like, how do I bring these things up? Because I don't want to get into like all of these personal details, but yeah, also, totally. I mean, the more I've talked about it, the more comfortable I am. And the more I, I feel like it is important because it is what the movie is about. And yeah. it is sort of this, I I mean, look, I mean, it's about me talking to other women, really, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and like, and the absurdity of all of it that we're still dealing with this on a regular basis, right? Yeah. Um, and that I think is what I'm trying to get across. But yeah, I mean, it is a little cathartic to talk talk about it. But honestly, uh, anytime I have to answer, I feel like I my voice wavers. I feel like I have oh. I have like a little bit of um, 
of trouble. And for a while I had it like written down, like how to talk about it, but I think I'm getting a little bit better. (laughs) That's so interesting. I mean, I feel like I can almost sort of feel that tension and that struggle in the May character. Now, hearing you talk about it, it kind of alters my perception of May in a particular way that I think is really interesting. Because mm-hmm. one of the things about this movie I think is so interesting is sort of the conflict of that character and like... Yeah, and, and to me, I mean, like, just to be clear, like, I don't... I mean, I wrote the screenplay, but then I, I kept digging more into May as a character who I don't think, Mm -hmm. I think I do have some stuff in common with, but I also think she's a character that I'm just interested in exploring as a writer and as an actor, because I don't think we, I I think she does make some choices that I would not make. And I think she does. I mean, obviously I'm not a self-help book author and I never would be. I would never (laughs) even think to. Natasha knows there's this funny story where I took a photo of, uh, of the cover of the book and put it on my Instagram. And people were like, oh, you wrote a book. And I was like, what? I was like, first of all, that's not my name. Second of all, uh, I would never, like, and not a million years, I mean, not write a book, but I wouldn't write a self-help book. Like, that's just, like, so not who I am as a person. Um, Uh So I think, I mean, and Natasha can, can definitely speak to this, but I think, like, I wanted to write this woman who was conflicted and was complicated and makes some decisions that I don't necessarily agree with. And I hope maybe I would choose something different, but I think for her, these were the right decisions. And what really worked about Natasha, she came in and read the script and was never like, ah, can you make her more likable? Can you make her like make these other choices? Like Natasha totally got the story from May's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what you were saying, Rachel, about, you know, there's these two sort of extreme ends. Yeah. Women women are not a monolith, right? right. And I and right. I think that's something that Hollywood maybe doesn't fully understand um, yeah. or, or doesn't want to acknowledge. But I, I think most of us live somewhere in between, right? right? Most of us are not that on either, you know, far end extreme. And and I found that um, actually incredibly grounding. So Brio sort of paints this world that is obviously hyper stylized and hyper expressionistic but by putting this really grounded believable flawed woman at the center of it you know you're you're pulled through right and you you stick through all this crazy shit that's happening around her because you believe that she's real and and you want to see what she's going to do next because you don't know because she's a real person right mm-hmm. she she's written a believable you know a three-dimensional character at the center of this wacky twilight zone episode so yeah. um you know that was one thing that that i that i i think we brought through and that bria articulated beautifully in her performance right so not shying away from the bad decisions that may makes or may's moment of moments of weakness right we mm-hmm. see that the, these final girls who are usually teenagers or whatever and they're you know they, they follow a certain path in these slasher movies and you know we were sort of thinking of may as like the final woman right like mm-hmm. she's grown yeah. <laughs> she's very much grown and she's dealing with big girl shit and um you know i i really appreciate that i think that that's fun to watch that character who is so grounded and grounded in her performance right go Mm -hmm. through this crazy you know circus of stuff yeah and Natasha I don't even think I told you this but after um we showed on Shutter, I got a dm from a a man a man I was gonna say someone but it was a man and I don't know if that's I mean it is a little bit relevant um, because he was like well why would you write this character why did she not save everyone at the end? Like, where was her redemption? Right. And I was like, 
Well, it's not prescriptive. I I wasn't. I'm not writing. I, I'm trying to write a character that I I don't. Th- I'm not saying this is what you should do, which is what we've kind of been doing with these final girls for years and years. We're like, this is how mm-hmm. you survive. You be a virgin and you make mm-hmm. all the right choices, and you know all of these things that make you so perfect. And I was like, mm-hmm. but I'm not trying to write her. Like I've seen that woman before. I I want to write someone way more complicated. And we were trying to paint a picture of the the situation as it exists, right? We're opening right. a window to, um, to what is going on. And the truth is we are not perfect beings, right? Like we don't always connect in the right way. We've mm-hmm. all made mistakes. We've all been in situations where we look back and we say, fuck, I should have done this, this, and this, but I didn't. Right. And that's, right. That's why Lucky works, right? That's why the movie yeah. works is for women, especially, is is we we understand that May is is making the decisions that she makes, and that's it. And it's not you know a good thing or a bad thing. It's not passing judgment. It's just painting the picture um, yeah. as it is. Yeah, I mean, part of May's complicated nature also that I that I appreciated in this is it kind of pushes back at this all too often, and this is something that is very much like you said as it is right now, is that you have to be the perfect victim in order to be believed or your story to be validated. And on the other hand, you have to have the perfect monster villain in order for burden of the proof for it to shift in that direction. You need to be these, you need to have this true dichotomy between the two things. Whereas in reality, everybody is somewhere in this gray area for the most part. And a lot of this movie is about gaslighting and being discredited. And, And I wanted to know if that was something that was also part of the thinking when you were creating these characters and when you were directing her to be this character. Yeah. I mean, it's gaslighting the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. I don't know, Bria, if you want to talk about the, the, the story stuff, but I'll just say really briefly that yes, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, our, our cinematographer is a woman. We had a lot of women on set and I think there was a shorthand with a lot of them. So it was kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, we're this, the, the house is gaslighting her, you know, <laughs> like the, the production designer who is a woman got that, you know, she's like, totally, I get it. And so she, she brought her own originality to it for, you know, just a very quick example the um, paintings inside of the house change. Um, There's Mm -hmm. a certain point where the paintings that are in the house, um, you know, what they're showing changes and changes to more violent imagery. But, you know, it was was stuff like that. Or um, our production designer put a lot of, um, you know, I wanted female body parts to be all over the house. And she kind of had this great idea of of little hand mannequins and, and the hands of the mannequin show, you know, what day we're on. So it's like that kind of stuff where the world is twisting around her. Mm. Right. And in the cinematography and in that. So, you know, bringing that creative story idea and then finding ways to express it throughout all the different departments was a lot of fun. And I think um, a lot of the women on set had really we had a lot of really great conversations about, okay, how can we show this? How can we show the ground shifting underneath her feet uh, in an interesting way? Even, you know, the the lights changing behind her, that kind of stuff. Um, But but, you know, Bria, it all comes from Bria's script, which is Totally bizarre, by the way. (laughs) When I read it, I was like, yo, this is crazy. (laughs) What the heck? And then, you know, from there, once we had, we started having conversations, it was just like, I mean, look, the dial, the volume's already at an eight. We might as well just dial it up to 11. Like, (laughs) and, um, you know, she was into it, but, but I did want to say really briefly, you know, when this script came to me, it was, it was sent to me by a producer who knew me from my first film 
And he sort of had an instinct that I would respond to the material. But at the backdrop of me reading this was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, um, uh-huh. which oh, was wow. just like okay. a total mm-hmm. clusterfuck of emotion and, you know, a lot of feelings going on. So I think that in the backdrop of reading this script really helped me feel like this is part of the conversation and that we can we can amplify it and we can tell it through our own perspective um and and i think that this could be really interesting so you know in a lot of ways i think it was it, it was in, it was attractive to me to do something that would sort of reclaim the narrative um because it gets so twisted mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so yeah i just wanted that was sort of the the context of what was going on um you know in the day to day when i first got the script and then of course now we're uh, you know, two, three years later, um, <laughs> right. still talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. There's always something new makes it relevant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So looking at the crew of the film, we noticed, and we're super excited to see how many women were listed. Is that something that was intentional? Is that important to both of you as filmmakers to include women in your crew? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's something Bri and I, and the producers sort of discussed really early on. Um, I know that they were, um, you know, our producing team initially was uh, was, was all male. And oh, so okay. they actually, um, which I was thrilled to hear, um, were interested in finding uh, women identifying producers to come on board um, to sort of be our day-to-day. And so that's how we brought Chelsea and Kim on. Uh, and they really, you know, were... Handling, Chelsea was our line producer, um, you know, jack of all trades. <laughs> and so, you know, that from, from there, they were sort of some of the first people we brought on. Julia, um, our DP, is just somebody I had been working with for a while. So she was a, she was a super easy sell <laughs> to the team. Uh, so, yeah, and, I, you know, I have a lot of crew from past projects and I do commercials and stuff. So, you know, I just sort of reaching out to those folks and seeing who might want to be on board. Um, however, we were not prescriptive about it in the way that we were like only women, right? Sure. We definitely hired the people who were best for the job, which mm-hmm. is all any of us are really asking for anyway. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so we had, we had many, we had a lot of really wonderful men, um, who were part of the project as well. And I think their participation was actually so great because, you know, we can, we could have been myopic as well, right? Like we could have seen it, um, you know, this is what we're doing, blah, 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 no ifs, ands, or buts, but but to have those conversations and to think through and at least recognize the places where our, our, our male audiences um, might bump or be confused, for mm. me, was extremely important because while, yes, this movie is for women, we don't want it to, you know, exclude anybody. Um, sure. So I guess for me, you know, I'm rambling a little bit, but the point no. is we... We wanted to hire the best people for the gig, um, and I think that's, you know, ultimately what, who we ended up with. Um, and there were a lot of really interesting conversations that came out of it. You know, our editor, <laughs> our editor was so great. You know, he would sit down and he would say, like, look, this is, this is how I put this scene together, but I, I feel like I'm maybe, you know, missing something. Can we talk about this, right? Or if you ever hear me, you know, doing something or making a choice that doesn't make sense, you know, please you know, slap, slap me across the head and say, no, that's, that's the point, you know? So, so having those conversations really is the whole point of this, right? It's men and women and everyone working together, um, having conversations and, and that's where the healing happens. So, um, I was very happy with how our crew came together. 
That's yeah, great. that's that's so great because I think watching this film, there's so much catharsis in it as a woman to see your experiences on screen. But I imagine working in a collaboratively like that, where you can get other people's perspectives, maybe will help men who see it to also understand why this is true for women. It, it was fascinating, honestly. It was so fascinating, and, and Bria and I predicted every single step of this. By the way, <laughs> um, <laughs> we were like here's what the men are going to say. Here's what the women are going to say. And I have to, it, it exactly down those lines is, oh, is where the response came from, you know? So men would say, I, I understand so much more about what my girlfriend was telling me about, or, or somebody said to me, um, you know, I understand now why my girlfriend doesn't want to take the garbage out after dark, you know, and that really mm -hmm. stuck with me. And I was like, how long have you been with this person? You're just like, like <laughs> really? You know? Right. And, and so it's just fascinating. And, and you know, Bri and I knew we're like, they're going to want to know where the husband is. Oh, God. The husband. The husband. The early, like in the script. Where is Ted? Yeah. We, so, I, I mean, I had the script at a couple different places before uh, we actually set it up with Ep well, uh, Epic Green Lidens and said yes to it. And um, I, I had gone through a couple of different changes for other uh, producers that I just felt like didn't get it, but I wanted the movie made. So I kept like making changes and kind of came back to this version of it, which ended up being mm -hmm. great. But one note like that we got, I got early on and then we kept getting was people are like, well, where does the husband go for the whole movie? And I'm like, it's not the husband's story. Fuck the husband. Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> he goes somewhere. This world the is The women weird. did not care. The women could not give less of a shit. They totally got it. Yeah. It was so, they didn't so even funny. notice. They so didn't notice. Even no, yeah. of course it didn't. Like, you're not even thinking about it. But a lot of men were like, well, what about the husband? And we're like, well, like, it's just clear that, like, I mean, I think it's like a little bit like visibility issues, you know, where we're all mm -hmm. kind of watching the person maybe we relate to. I don't know. There, there's a movie I'm in and I won't call it out right now, but um, I play the girlfriend of the main character. And at one point we're all talking in a room and then we're walking out of the room and it cuts to the next room where we walk into and I'm just gone. My character's literally <laughs> oh, oh my God. gone because we were like shooting and we shot it in two different locations and they, for some reason they didn't realize I was in the scene. I mean, I could tell you why. Um, and and I think it's it's a little bit of that. It was just like it's a movie that no one noticed I was even in <laughs> a little Jeez. bit. And that was uh, I mean I don't think we did that with Ted. I think we explained where Ted was and yeah. why, why it wasn't important. It was like because this is right. all by the time Ted is gone, it's it's uh, we're in May's head anyway. So right. And I mean, he says all of the, like everything in his dialogue is about abandoning her essentially to her problem. So mm -hmm. for him to disappear thematically makes sense. I don't, yeah, it really I'm does. not really sure why people aren't picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's actually one of my favorite scenes is the one, uh, the, the breakfast scene between him and <laughs> May, where it's like, to me, it is the most succinct. So yes. It's, <laughs> And it's like this perfectly boiled down, succinct illustration of both gaslighting and also the myriad ways that quote unquote good guys fail to be allies that I think I've ever seen on screen. And mm -hmm. like that paired with his deadpan delivery just like killed me. Um, can you tell me a little bit about writing and directing that scene in particular? Well, I mean, we should talk, we should give um, uh, props for sure to Drew, who plays, uh, mm -hmm. play, plays Ted in the movie. He's, 
amazing. He and he was Natasha, who's friend? He someone knew him because I didn't know him before this. We have mutual friends, but I didn't know him. Yeah, I had a friend who um, is in the comedy scene. So we basically wanted to surround these characters with um, comedians, actually people with stand-up or improv background. Um, oh, not stand-up, I misspoke, sorry. Improv or, or comedy, right? Like sketch comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, you know, for me, it was like, we got to lean into this, right? Like if, if, if we play this with these, these actors who are going to come in and fill it with heaviness and really weigh it down with so much gravity, it's like, <laughs> this thing is not going to work. It's, it's absurdist. It's absurdist theater. It has to have this like, you know, Inesco-esque comedy to it. Um, And so anyway, I I sort of, we were reaching out, um, Bria and I, to our comedy friends, and a good friend of mine um, was like, check out Drew, he's amazing. And we did, (laughs) and we loved him, and we cast him. (laughs) And he did a great job, he did a great job. That's the story. Um, Yeah, that scene, I mean, that scene obviously is like this pivotal scene. Well, I mean, it's one of the pivotal scenes in the movie, but, I do remember shooting it and feeling like, oh, this is like, we if we were putting on a play, it would also work. You know what I mean? Like, we shot it, mm-hmm. it just felt like it was, like, kind of flowing well all the way through, uh, which doesn't often happen in, in film. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't remember writing it. I know I did, but... Who <laughs> 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 <I> could say? <laughs> I mean, I think the one thing I wanted was, uh, you know, just include some of these conversations that I've had... Yes. with people with mm-hmm. with boyfriends or people I've dated in the past where they don't believe me or they're like you know what you're like too upset like you obviously can't have this conversation and I'm like no I I get my strength from being upset like that is when I should speak always um, yeah. <laughs> you know but I, again trying to include these things that are and, and throughout the script try to include these things that people say that are cliches and for some reason we believe them you know like we're like mm-hmm. oh things happen for a reason or everything mm-hmm. works out and they, like things where I'm like what what that isn't just because you say a thing with conviction doesn't mean that it's true. Yes, <laughs> um, yes And yes. I think that scene has a lot of those kinds of uh, lines in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the, you know, look, one of the great things about directing movies <laughs> is you get to live many lives, right? And, and as a filmmaker, your job is to, you know, in your prep work, go in and inhabit these characters ahead of time so that you can give your actors, you know, your, their, what they're doing in the scene. Um, what I really enjoyed with that scene was finding where Ted started in the scene. So Ted's whole thing is he's trying to, um, you know, they had a really, they had a sort of nice night the night before. He's trying to make her breakfast. He's feeling good. He feels like, okay, our marriage, we're having a second chance at our marriage. Um, you know, he, he comes into the scene really wanting to please May. And so when Bria comes in with this really pretty aggressive energy, um, Mm -hmm. challenging him, you know, not eating the food that he prepared, not really appreciating the work that he's tried to put in, I think the rest of the scene came really naturally from Mm -hmm. him, which Mm -hmm. is difficult because Bria's dialogue is is not, um, you know, that realistic, right? Again, it's sort of this absurdist Twilight Zone world that we're coming into. So to find a way to give Dhruv um, a place to start with in the scene, I think was really key. I don't know if you if you guys like getting into the nerdy oh, yes. stuff. Oh, yes. Nerd it up. Yes. <laughs> it's just sort of like the pre-life of where he was coming from, right? So he, yeah. you know, he he got up an hour before she did and he started making breakfast and he's made it all perfect and he made the orange juice and he did all this stuff. And to start him in that place and then let him 
really be wounded by her lack of appreciation. So it's not even that it's not about the man for him. Right. He's like, it's like, that's yeah. The sun comes up in the morning. This guy comes and tries to kill us. What's, you know, what are you talking about? It was much more about, um, giving, filling him in that way, um, about their marriage. And Drew and I talked a lot about their marriage. He was really curious. He really wanted to know where they were in their relationship. Uh And it's very much a, subtle backdrop to the movie but it's one of my favorite things about um what bria did with the script which is may have cheated on ted right you know and that's in the backdrop of all of this is that she made a mistake and you know for for ted it's like really this thing of you know he he forgave her they're trying to make their marriage work they're trying to find what they had lost along the way and there's something so sad about that so i think when he gets his feelings hurt it's funny (laughs) It's definitely funny, uh, yeah. but if you want to look at it from that other side, it's yet another tragic example of May right. being completely incapable of connecting to the people in her life. So that was kind of where that, Interesting. Um, where yes. he came from. I feel as an audience member, I'm so on Bree's side that I didn't stop to think about, like I, I was more just like annoyed. Ted has feelings too. Yeah. He cares at the end and he's like, you really hurt my feelings. I was like, we have bigger fish, but you're right. Like from his perspective, he is the victim. <laughs> I just but, immediately but again, was like, mm, your victim but, mentality is making me angry. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reality of the situation, right? Yeah. Like going back to, we don't live in extremes. Everybody yeah. is living in their own reality and their mm-hmm. own um, set of circumstances. So when you go, when, when, when you're having an experience and you have a problem, you go to somebody and you don't get the help that you need, that person is not like, okay, maybe they're like a hateful Nazi, but <laughs> chances are they have their own set of reasons for doing that. So, right. you know, that, that and, and that's, again, this is a, a grounded characters, character motivations set in this Twilight Zone bizarro world. Mm-hmm. And that was incredibly important to me that all those through lines follow through. So yeah, you can, you can laugh at him in that moment. And I hope most people do because it's very funny that he says that his feelings were hurt. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but, but when you go back and you watch it again, it was very important to me that that follow through, that that have real motivated um, emotional connections for yeah. each character follows through in a, in a, in a relevant and logical way. I think mm-hmm. that that is really important because that is the truth of of the crazy world that we live in. <laughs> I'm starting yeah. the hashtag what about Ted? Hashtag <laughs> what about Ted? <laughs> <laughs> so funny. You Poor have Ted. some takers. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Ted. Yeah. He delivers some of the most chilling lines of the movie though, I think. Between, oh, mm-hmm. it's the guy that comes to kill us every night. And also just like, you know, you're not safe in there when they get back to the house. And he, he does it yeah. all in this very nonchalant way that just really adds to how kind of terrifying it is. I think because it's sort of grounded in the fact that he, what he's saying is just plain truth. Um, well, it's yeah. the banality of evil, right? It's, yes. it's yeah, that idea point. that it's standardized and it's been sort of wrapped into um, our day-to-day life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of subgenre, Lucky kind of falls into the slasher genre. I know I've heard you guys talk about that a little bit. Um, It sort of capitalizes on those tropes. But as much as I love slashers, it's kind of a mixed bag where it introduces the concept of the final girl, but it also has some pretty kind of regressive ideas and politics. Was that something you guys thought about when you were making the film? Or Bria, is that something you thought about when you were writing it? Did you want to kind of subvert those tropes or? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, definitely. I mean, I think we're both genre fans, obviously. So uh, it it we're familiar with the slasher genre, and yeah, I think in a lot of the stuff that I want to create, it I start with the premise of it's like this thing you know really well, and I did something different with it because I mm-hmm. love sort of like collective knowledge and and mm-hmm. ideas like that we all are familiar with, and especially as genre fans because. I think we're all so well-versed in the tropes and the world. Um, but that doesn't mean, like, the structure of a slasher is a good structure for a movie. Yeah. And so, sure. like, following mm-hmm. that structure and knowing when to escalate it and stuff, that, that stuff it is from horror movies. And that I just took the idea and and ramped it up and put a different sort of lead in there and... Um, and and obviously did a lot of other <laughs> random things <laughs> throughout, uh, and then and then made it a lot more surreal. And in early versions of the script, it was much more of just a straightforward slasher. And then uh, the parking garage scene actually came later in later versions of the script. Uh, wow. And once I figured that part out, I was like, oh, I need to just acknowledge this is not reality. I think I was trying to keep it too close to reality. Uh-huh. In, in, in fact, I mean, slashers are so insane. Like, it's what? Like, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, it's like a nightmare. Like, a, like, I always think about, and look, I was on Dexter and I appreciate the residuals, but I always think about, uh, like, Dexter. Uh, uh, but I'm like, if that many people were getting killed in Miami, it would be like the, like, if there's a serial killer, it is like national news, you know? And yeah, like, so if there's totally. like this many people getting killed in like one city, uh, it would be, it, it, like, they, they would send in, like, the Marines or something. I don't know who they send in. But, um, <laughs> I, but for, for this, like, I mean, I was like, oh, right, I'm not dealing with reality. And I need to stop playing by the, uh, by the rules of reality, which is uh, why the characters, I, I wanted them to start talking, like, more, like, especially um, the sister character or even Ted, like, yeah. have them have their language, like, become more surreal and weirder and weirder as things go on mm-hmm. because we're all we're living in this world that is not our current world so it so and what what's so great about natasha and what she, uh and what she does is that like the script had that but not to the extent like that she was able to pull off with it where she just really leaned into the surreal and bizarre aspects of the script mm-hmm. so that it becomes not so much a slasher because there is a version of this movie that just feels like a slasher you know and uh and i think i mean maybe i'm wrong but i i think that it could be shot in that way but instead she was like no like (laughs) this is a weird movie and we're gonna make it look weird and lean into all of this weirdness which i appreciate i mean not to get on like a complete tangent about like horror movies but like there's so many movies being made right now and i think Mm -hmm. finding a cool way into the horror genre is our responsibility as artists right now. It's not, we shouldn't be remaking the same movie that we've seen a million times. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that was in this, like, I think it was these little nuggets that were in the script that a filmmaker could choose to, you know, blossom or not, Um, you know, and and it was, you could read, it's definitely a piece of absurdist satire wrapped in the Mm -hmm. skin of a slasher. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, I think, you know, there's, there's the sequence where it's like, we call it the singing cop. I was just going to bring that up. I love that scene. (laughs) And, you know, and, and I, I think I, I remember in the script, I think it says there's like one parenthetical where it says, maybe they, they, it's like, you know, they speak in a sing-songy voice, parenthetical, maybe they do sing. And that was it. 
And, you know, and, and Bri and I were talking and I was like, is, should it be a musical? Like, <laughs> always be a musical. Hashtag always go musical. <laughs> so, you know, I think it was all, it was peppered with all of these little great things that for me, I was like, this is what's exciting to me. Like I get, you know, we, we read a lot of movie scripts that get sent to us and, you know, to have something that has all those delicious little opportunities to, you know, stretch and flex and, and be really expressionistic because that's one of the beautiful things of making an indie, right? You don't have a lot of money. You don't have a lot of time. What you do have is freedom. Yeah. And sure. so to not take advantage of that, you know, with, within reason, right? Like it still it has to be somewhat um, a, a followable movie. Right. Um, but, you know, to be able to play with that, I think is a big, um, op- was a big opportunity. Uh, Very cool. I mean, I just assumed that whenever um, Nakia Gamby Turner showed up on set, you just made her sing. <laughs> I thought that's how that worked. That's funny. <laughs> Treasure. I mean, she's amazing. And Jesse, uh, who sang too, I mean, he he's known for singing. He literally is an opera singer. He's an opera oh, singer, yeah. yeah. Did not know. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Cool. That's very, very cool. So speaking of horror and the, you know, the fact that this is ultimately a scary movie. I wanted to talk to you or ask you a little bit about how you craft scares because there is some very overtly scary things like the man, you know, looking out the window and seeing a man there. There's a, a moment where he looks at her as he turns to walk through the door to towards a door that is genuinely chilling that that just sort of that physical performance gave me the creeps. <laughs> but then there's also this a sense of creeping dread throughout. And I know it's because there's some degree of it being surreal, but I, I wanted to ask you as a, a writer and a filmmaker, uh, how you go about crafting scares. Well, Bria has been making horror movies for a long time. So I feel like Bria, you kind of grew up on film horror movie sets, right? So I imagine you pulled a lot from that. Since I was in my mid twenties, maybe. So I don't know. Is that growing yeah. up? <laughs> Uh, I did my most of my growing in my twenties. Point made. I mean, I didn't even move to LA until I was twenty five years old. So, uh, and was like, I'm going to be an actress. But some of the first earliest stuff I did. I mean, look. I mean, I think I think it's so. In some ways, it's so subjective, right? It's like it's about what scares you. And um, mm-hmm. for me, obviously, this is a very scary subject. Um, it's not something I even like talking about. So, like everything in this movie scares me. <laughs> Right. Um, uh, Sorry to keep doing this to you. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying not to. <laughs> um, so I think that that's part of it is, uh, you know, as a writer, if you're writing about something that scares you, uh, then you're then it's going to be scary, which I think is where, like, some horror movies fall apart, right? It's that you have writers who are not passionate about the genre or they're not passionate about uh, mm-hmm. what scares them because that, that's what you should be writing about if you're writing a horror movie and even if it's a movie about you know giant snakes and they don't scare you then you need to put in giant spiders if that's what scares you that's a horrible example right. but you understand what I mean uh, like, yeah, you put in the thing that scares you <laughs> and then I think you're gonna find as a writer and as a filmmaker uh your way in because you'll be able to visualize it but I mean mm-hmm. part of it has to do with just self-awareness right like figuring out what yeah. it is it is that is going to get you going. And I think you're going to find an audience member that feels the exact same way. Yeah. Interesting. Um, So earlier you guys were talking about some of the symbolism in the house when you were doing the set set decorating and everything. I think both Rachel and I really appreciated how much symbolism there is in this film. There's things like the cracking glass and the mirrors 
and the way that her hair becomes slowly disheveled, more and more disheveled as the movie goes <laughs> along, kind of mirroring her internal experience there. Um, and you talked about the ivy growing in the house. So can you just talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I think this ties into what we were just talking about, about crafting scares. Um, I, I actually think Bri and I have a really good dynamic here because you know, she wrote scary stuff into the movie. And then what, you know, I, I like a lot about horror as a genre, but what I really, really love is the idea of beauty in horror. Mm, um, okay. And, you know, sort of like the Clive Barker school of like, don't look mm. away, look away, don't look away, look away. <laughs> and, you know, or Suspiria or, you know, I, mm. I love, or even, you know, some of the earliest genre pieces from early you know, the times of early film, right? So like 1920s, 1930s horror films and how just stunningly beautiful they are yeah, and imaginative. And so, you know, this, the symbolism and even the way the scares, less so the action, the action was more about, you know, getting, getting across what was happening to May's character, but everything else around it, those sort of creeping moments that you're talking about, the, um, the design of the man, the design of the house, um, also, keep in mind, we had no fucking money for this movie. <laughs> it does not look like and, it. No, it does Bl right. Bless you for saying that. Bless you for saying that. So, so everything I'm saying, you know, I think it's important that, that people listening um, keep in mind that on a little movie like this, you have to fight tooth and nail for every single one of these choices, right? Like yeah. every painting that you create, every version of the mask, every, you know, piece of clothing that you're, you're specifically buying you know, getting somebody to braid Bria's hair, like that shit costs money. Right. <laughs> and it's hard to do, take care of all those little details with the attention that we did without a really ace team who's right. going to go and do the, go the extra mile and do the, you know, do the extra work and put the extra energy into it. So, you know, when you don't have money and you don't have time, you have to lean on your people. And luckily we had people who really came through and, and believed in the project, but um, okay, so so yeah, so going back to the idea of symbolism and beauty and horror, I think that that was that was really appealing to me, especially bringing to something that is wearing the skin of a slasher, which is usually a pretty ugly experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so that was sort of a fun challenge for me. And I think also since it is a very feminine movie, mm -hmm. um, we could make it a little bit more beautiful. We could make it more. Um, soft around the edges and not quite so muscular, right? We can embrace right. the fact that we have this woman at the center of the story. Um, everything started from Bria. So like literally just the way Bria looks <laughs> for me, it was like, so you, you come to a script, it's, it's, it's words on a piece of paper. Um, you don't have anything set yet. What I knew we had was Bria. So um, I, I kind of started seeing her in this like sort of pale blue light, like in the way that like, you know, she would look in like an Ingmar Bergman movie, you know, in Persona or something with uh -huh. this sort of frosty hair and, um, you know, dressed in cool colors and that kind of stuff. And from there, we sort of started um, pulling those elements out into the world around her. So the house also has a lot of cool elements, right? It has a lot of blues, a lot of greens. It has a lot of um, uh, female figurines, right? Female hands, female yeah. torsos. Often the torsos are cut off, right? So like it's mm. missing limbs, mm. um, you know, just like sort of disembodied, um, which, you know, can start looking a certain way, but by the end of the film feels a little bit more violent. Yeah. Um, you know, finding, uh, elements to put around. There's like some sea creatures. <laughs> There's like oh. squids and, um, talking about shit that's scary. I'm fucking terrified of the deep sea. 
Oh, that's yes, reasonable. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, me too. And, and again, it's just, and, and, and this is all like remote association, right? Like making a movie is like, this makes me feel this way. Mm-hmm. Um, quick tangent, my mother is a performance artist. So I grew up around like crazy artists in the 90s in New York City, mm-hmm. like black box, Lower East Side vibes. And, oh, wow. You know, one thing you can learn from those folks is, not everything has to be provable to a Hollywood executive. Like there doesn't need to be a perfect line between each of your decisions. Right. <laughs> Sometimes you're yeah. just like, I think there should be a fucking squid in the background of this shot because that's what it is. And then yeah. you're, you're tapping into some sort, you're letting your mind free associate. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and what comes through ends up sometimes feeling more whole and more organic because you're just letting your your brain sort of run loose with stuff. And then, of course, you're bringing in other brains. So now the production designer is like, you know, sends me a picture. She's at a thrift store. Hey, I found this this blue octopus sculpture. Should we put it in the table? Great. Yes, bring it in, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so fascinating. A lot of the symbolism comes from that. Uh, one very direct piece of symbolism that um, came from the guy, uh, Jeff Farley designed our mask. Um, he actually had the great idea. Uh, so when you rewatch the movie, um, if you look at the, the various men, including May's man, uh, they've actually got the names of their associated women etched onto the mouth of their mask. Oh, oh wow. That. Oh, yeah. So did I. That's so, great. I love it. Yeah. So you can see that when you go back in, um, he's actually got the words may, it looks like scarring or something, Yeah. but, um, it's actually the letters M A Y. So, and then the men oh. in the garage have different names. Um, Edie, the one who ends up getting, uh, you know, stalking Edie has the word Edie over his mouth. So it's kind of fun, you know, stuff like that, that we tried to, to put in. But anyway, short story long, we started with Bria, a lot of these sort of cooler, colder colors that obviously work in opposition to the man who is red. Um, You know, there's red in almost everything he's wearing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, then how those two elements really start to come together and clash uh, in the movie. Oh, that's great. I love hearing about the creative process that way, the way you free associate it. I've never heard somebody talk about it that way. It's great. I'm totally going to nerd art. out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm totally going to nerd out and go look at all the masks. Yeah. <laughs> Including exactly. the one that's just inexplicably in the child's room. I'm like, oh, and looking yeah. over the bed. <laughs> so creepy. Yeah. So, so obviously the, one of the things that this film sort of explores and is genuinely the most terrifying thing is, is obviously things like systemic misogyny. What I think is kind of unique about this, though, and so often gets overlooked in movies that touch on these social issues is that, and it is so real, is that exhaustion and sort of like spiritual fatigue that it kind of engenders, it it doesn't get talked about. And I think a lot of us have spent the last four years really kind of living that experience. So I wanted to know uh, uh, if a little bit about what made you guys decide to focus on that in in this process. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something I think we all are feeling. I it's yeah. funny, you say exhaustion and my my brain immediately goes to I mean, uh well, yeah, is the amazing makeup job that got done on this movie. Um, <laughs> I will say like, I mean, I'm not kidding, like uh there was one night we were shooting y'all. We shot this thing in 15 days. So when Natasha is like we shot this for no money, she is not shitting you at all it's like a very low budget movie um and there was one night where I think I had to change 12 different times and uh my I had also 12 different makeup and hair changes so like bless that team they did such an amazing job 
Um, they are just like real, real heroes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, like that was part of the script is the is is the repetitiveness of uh, of all of this. The moment, and and I think it's even like that moment where you're like, oh, I have, I've, I've resolved this. Like, I have a restraining order or whatever the thing is that you think is going to resolve it, but then it doesn't resolve because if it's not this, it's another problem because these problems are systemic, as you said, and yeah, um, they don't really go away. So. I think that is something we were definitely trying to play with here in the script and in the movie uh, overall. Like, I mean, I think that was just like one of the basic, basic things is that's the reason he's coming back every night. And that's the the sort of Groundhog Day comparison. I'm always hesitant to say Groundhog Day because I feel like that's not exactly what this is. But it's it's that it's that repetitiveness and where she's still living through all of it. But everyone else is right, like, right, this is the world. And, and uh, of course, it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I mean i loved this metaphor of the disappearing killer because like it it goes back to halloween right where he just he's gone but you know that means the fight's not over but instead of it being at the end of the movie and just sort of like waiting for the you know surprise end, it happens over and over and over again and sort of reinforces this fight like it's not over it's not over it's not over yeah, yeah which is also yeah. like the uh, playing into like the the tropes of like um uh, of of slasher movies because they they do they do disappear like that's like you know mm-hmm. Jason mm-hmm. Friday they disappear yeah. at random times yeah. and you're like where do they go and like bringing that into a world that um uh uh feels real uh and then just hanging a lantern on it yeah so um something else that gets touched on sort of throughout the film is this idea of solidarity there's that scene in the bookstore when she's doing her book signing they talk about not running to each other for help or the reveal that all the women around her are also dealing with their own killer. She also has a conversation with her assistant in the garage and it comes up a lot in that. I really love that conversation, by the way. Mm-hmm. So what was your thinking in approaching it that way with no sort of real declarative statement being made, but just all of these ideas sort of throughout it? What do you hope your audience thinks about it? I hope that they recognize, you know, if not themselves, um, you know, a friend or an experience or some aspect of themselves Mm -hmm. in that, um, because I know I certainly do. Um, And I think that it's something that we don't really want to talk about, right? Like it's a conversation about white feminism. It's Mm -hmm. a conversation about intergenerational feminism. It's you know, it's so many things that um, prevent us from connecting in a real and actionable way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, again, <laughs> by no means is it is a two minute, you know, scene tackling all of that. But I hope that it's some nod that can create, um, you know, meaningful conversations, um, s- starting out of some sort of grounded, recognizable experience. Yeah, and I mean, for me, I mean, writing and coming from the point of view of the self-help book author, I was kind of trying to play on these themes that I see in these books sometimes where it is all about, like, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Like, you can do it. Come on, girl. Like, that, like some sort of, like, thing that I think uh, doesn't actually – work it's it's not it, I mean mm-hmm. it obviously works for some people because someone wrote a book about it I guess but um but I, I mean I wanted to play on it as something that like I don't 
think works in the real world. This is not something like I, I think is is necessarily good. I mean, I don't want to like give it some sort of like morality uh, uh, about it. It'd be moral about it. But um, but I mean, for me, it just felt like that was what she really would believe in. She believes that like she has to do everything by herself because that's the way you get ahead. Mm-hmm. And obviously that does not work out very well for her or for most people because in reality, you can't really do anything by yourself. Yeah, I really loved that parking garage scene so much because one of the things that May says is that uh, it's something like, I can't fix it for myself, so how can I possibly fix it for anybody else? And I think that's so wonderful because it really taps into that feeling that I think a lot of women have. Like, what I'm going through is so exhausting and overwhelming. How can I fix the larger issue that it's happening to everyone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's that's also such a dark moment of sure. the film that um, I, I think one sort of important thing for me anyway was to then lift us you know be lifted out of the parking lot and feel like we have some sort of moment to breathe and that um the movie doesn't end at the parking lot right like it ends on a somewhat more hopeful Mm -hmm. note um I mean hopeful is not the right word (laughs) but um you know, we, we didn't really want to end it with this like incredibly nihilistic moment of her abandoning this this young woman who needs her. Um, but but we also didn't want to shy away from it. So I think that's why it comes at that point in the movie, which is really the low point of the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That final scene when she sort of unmasks him, it, you're right. It does some, even though presumably <laughs> the cycle continues, there is something hopeful about that final scene. I don't know if it's maybe because she's learned something about it and that like gives her a new, give her more power. I don't know, but there is something that does leave you in kind of a good place, which is, yeah. Yeah. That's intentional. That's definitely intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that was in Bria's performance. It's like, she, she goes through her sort of mourning, Mm -hmm. right? She, she's totally exhausted. It's this very quiet moment. She finds the shard and she's sort of re, you know, takes a deep breath and, and reassigns herself to, you know, getting back up and at him. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's certainly not the end of, you know, Texas Chainsaw. She's not like driving away right. from the problem. She's still very much in it. She's very much trapped in this like bizarro nightmare, but she has taken a moment to take a breath. Yeah and um you know return to the battle (laughs) Um, and and that was intentional that was very much intentional to end on that note so we're down to our last few questions but i i did want to ask so if this movie is kind of i don't this may be wrong you can tell me if my interpretation is incorrect but i kind of felt like it was a little bit of like woman versus relentless systemic misogyny (laughs) so if you were to make a sequel to this movie, what do you, what would you want to say with the sequel? What's the next, what is the next message or story in this story? I mean, I, I, <laughs> well, I would say like from a writing perspective, yeah, I don't, I think it would be a different story in the same universe. So I think, mm-hmm. I think this is very much May's story, right? And this is how May sees all of this. And this is her, her progression throughout the hour and however change amount of minutes uh that's left you know whatever it's like it's her story so I think if you made a sequel 
which I'm not trying to do over here, but if you made a sequel, I would say, uh, uh, I would want to see, you know, Edie's story. I'd want to see a woman in the parking garage's story. I want to see how they deal with it differently. Uh, how maybe, you know, start mid story. They've been dealing with it for three months, you know, like something like that, because I think that for me, it's that there's, there's so many stories to tell and there's not, there's not just one female experience and where you're telling right. one specific story yeah. through May, we're not telling every person's story in and we don't even try. And I don't think you should try unless you are capable, <laughs> you have that kind of movie. So I think, uh, yeah, so, like finding other women's stories and their relationship with this, with their own personal man. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So both of you are directors, which, by the way, Bria, we absolutely love 12-Hour Shift. It's an amazing movie, and she and I both keep telling everybody we can to go watch it. It gave me very nostalgic vibes and feelings for those times when we used to spend in Blockbuster in the 90s. Yeah, 90s Um, kids! (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, our podcast is all about women identified directors. And so we're really interested in that creative process, how you're making your films. So when both of you are directing films, what's your approach or your philosophy? Did you always know you wanted to make movies or was that something you came to later? For me, yes. Um, Again, I I grew up around the arts. So it wasn't like crazy for me to think about a career in the performing (laughs) arts. Um, You know, it's, it's so funny in retrospect, but um, I think I was in third grade or something and you had to do a report on like jobs or whatever. And I did my profile on Julie Taymor. Oh, it's like, it's it's like eight year old kid being like, this is how you do a play. I mean, it was plays, right? It was about theater. Um, I, I don't think at that point I realized that like making movies was a job. <laughs> You're just like, movies yeah. exist and that's it. <laughs> they just apparate one day. But um, yeah, so I, I mean, for me, it was always like sort of that idea of being the, um, you know, the ringleader in the circus mm-hmm. um, was just such an incredibly mysterious and um, sort of like powerful and challenging uh, career path that I think everything else that I was sort of considering as a young person just never really um, w- w- held itself in the way that um, a-, a career as a filmmaker did. Um, you know, and, and just everything about the-, the lifestyle, everything about it just sort of made sense mm-hmm. for me. Um, and-, and then it really just became at a very early age about like how to execute and how to achieve this and how to, you know, learn the skills and learn the craft and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I guess I've been chipping away at this damn thing for a really fucking long time. Um, you know, it's funny, like my mom's an artist, my dad's an ER physician. So it's like some weird combination of, of, you know, enjoying making decisions and in high tense circumstances Uh (laughs) combined with, you know, like artistic sensibilities. And it's, you know, to find a career that sort of satisfies both sides of yourself in that way is pretty special. Um, but yeah, my, my journey was basically, I, uh, I went to a, um, performing arts, you know, a, a high school that had a good performing arts program, from there, went to NYU, and then I actually launched a production company um, out when I left NYU, and was making branded content and commercial content, um, 
And then off of the money that I had basically made uh, and that our company had been able to sort of gather, um, we made my first feature film, um, which was super small movie. <laughs> uh, but, but that kind of really, that was the big jump. And I think, you know, for a lot of filmmakers, it, maybe there was a day when making a short film was like, that could be your calling card. But I think today it's really like to have a feature mm -hmm. film under your belt, mm -hmm. sure. um, is, is such an accomplishment. Yes. Um, and, and so I think that was really, uh, 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 that was really when I started really feeling like, okay, I'm a filmmaker. I, I can do this. I can put together a 90 minute story, um, that people will watch and understand what the fuck is going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not just a bunch of jumbled, you know, like music video imagery. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's, it's been a long, it's been a really long journey. And I, and I think this is a really difficult profession. Um, and, and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of, um, commitment and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, making sure that you are like mentally and financially, you have a, a stable place to work out of, <laughs> um, <Yeah>. because, <laughs> because it is so draining and, and strenuous. Um, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, mm -hmm. so that's kind of been my, my journey. Great. Yeah. I mean, by the way, uh, ER doctor, Natasha's parents are like exactly who you, who she is, which is very, <laughs> I, I don't know them, but I feel like when, like when she, when I found that out, I was like, this makes you make, you like came into crystal clear. Like I understood who you were. Um, uh, my, my journey is very different. We're all such little, little special snowflakes. I, um, uh, <laughs> Again, I didn't move to LA and start pursuing the film industry until I was 25. I got a master's degree in history before that and was like, I think I'm going to be an actress and moved to LA and um, acted uh, and made a living as an actor starting pretty quickly and um, did that for steadily for like 10, I mean, well, for a long time now, not for like 12 years or something like that. And um, I directed my first movie in 2013. Um, and mm -hmm. it was more or less, I had been writing comic books at that point, And then I co-wrote a script right. Right. and, um, I had always sort of, I, I'd always kind of done things outside of acting, but that was my first, like, I think I want to direct and I kind of want to see how this goes. And, um, to my, my, uh, co-writer's credit, who was also the poster of the movie, she totally was on board for that. And I think, um, I, I mean, I think I always thought I wanted to do something artistic and I wanted to like really feed that side of myself which I did for many many years as an actor and it was really awesome like taking other people's stuff and making it come to life and really mm -hmm. using my body and my mind as like uh you know the sort of playground for for making art um but a few years into acting it became very clear to me that I was not going to be happy doing just that because of um not not just that I was making other people's stuff because I do like that to a certain extent but but the uh it was only using one side of my brain and I mm -hmm. felt like I had I, I do love organization and I do love uh uh, uh the, all the things that come with being a director as far as making those kinds of decisions and 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 I mean I'm very bossy too which really helps uh but I think <laughs> I think that yes um, bossy lady. <laughs> and I, I'm just a person who has trouble sitting around waiting uh, for things to happen, which is your entire job as an actor, mm -hmm. both on set mm -hmm. and both um, in life. You're waiting for the phone to ring to, for them. There'll be already a project that's already going, and then you get involved, and hopefully you get to 
play some cool role. Um, and so it just became very clear to me after uh, making my first film and, and getting to write some more and doing more comic book stuff that I wanted to lean into that side of things. See, lean in. I read self-help books. Um, and, and, um, and then I just got a couple of uh, cool opportunities um, and made some shorts and then uh, just continued down that path, which feels like a much more satisfying path to me. Although I will say, like, I, I definitely still approach projects as like, a, okay, what is my what, – what can I do best in this project? Where, where am I the most useful? What, what is being what – what am I drawn to? Because – there are things that come to me that are that could possibly be scripts I could write or something, and I realize they're not right for me, but maybe it is something I could direct or maybe it's something I could act in. So I'm kind of at this really fortunate place where I can take things and realize what I am best suited for. And, like, I think you asked about philosophy, and I think that yeah. is, like, one of the most – the biggest things I'm still learning mm-hmm. about being a director, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and that is, like, being very open – to other people's ideas, other people's interpretations, but knowing, having a very strong vision of what you want and who you are and what you are capable of. And that mm-hmm. goes for like choosing mm-hmm. projects, but also like on the day, on a day-to-day basis. And I think Bria, your confidence in, in all those different aspects of yourself is what makes you a really great collaborator. Because I think when collaborations fail, it's because there's a lack of confidence or a lack of trust or a lack of like, you know, um, empowerment. And, and I think, you know, it was a pleasure to work with you because you, you are very confident in your place in the project. Right. And, and if you had been sort of, um, territorial about it or something, I don't think the film would have been as good. So I think it's really, um, it's what makes you a really strong collaborator. And it's a really lovely thing that you're able to do. Well, thanks. And I think, I and I think like, like as far as philosophies go again, like that's such an important thing is that once you are on a set and there is a director, the reason movies work is because you have this person steering the ship. And like with a movie like this, I mean, Natasha's vision was so strong and she came in with such like cool ideas that we all just fell in line like little soldiers as we should. And that's how sets should be. We should... There is one person, sometimes there's two directors, but like for the most part, you know, there's one person and that's when a movie really works when everyone is listening to that one person. And as long as that person is open to people's ideas and people coming in and bringing what they can bring, then you end up with a good movie. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So thank you for, for sharing that. That's so, I, I, one of the reasons I love learning about the women behind the camera is because everybody has their own approach and I just find it fascinating as a fellow bossy lady. I find it <laughs> I'm so bossy. I will say like I, uh, my nickname growing up was bossy Bria. That was what I had oh, to like wow. learn to take a step back from my bossiness and I have to, I'm like very aware of it. So I keep it like, I know I always want to say something, but I, I really hold, hold that in. <laughs> what a badge of honor. I yeah. think that's amazing. <laughs> so, okay. So in preparation for this movie um, or this, this chat today, I, I rewatched the movie um, and <laughs> I noticed one of this, in one of the scenes, you are talking to your literary agent, uh, your character is, and um, you talk about going on tour and promoting it and answering the same question over and over and over again, <laughs> which was, you know, as I'm writing the questions, I know you've answered many times was a little bit like, oh, 
cringe. So what I wanted to ask you guys was, is there a question that in all of the press you guys have had to do and are still in the process of doing, is there any question that no one has asked you, but you had kind of hoped someone would or something you wanted to talk about that nobody has brought up? Really? I don't know. Natasha? Um... Yeah. Ooh, that, that's a great, that's a great starter question. Um, I mean, I love, I, I, I just love talking about all of the people that we never end up talking about on movies, um, which is all of the, um, various departments. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think there's a lot of, um, specific dynamics uh, that are not so sexy for, for press purposes. <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing is you, you, you're able to find a bunch of people who are willing to come out for, for very little money and, you know, do these crazy hours and really bust their ass. And, you know, the, the question is why, right? Like, why do we do this? <laughs> and and right, why right. do all these people do this? And, and, and what is it that um, cause we're all taking a gamble, right? Like everybody is taking a gamble that this is going to be good, that it's going to be good for their career, that it's going to, you know, help, um, move forward a conversation or, you know, their, again, their own career or whatever it might be. And I think one thing that was really cool about this movie was, um, the fact that we did do it in 15 days and we didn't go over time really. Wow. We had, wow. Wow. I think maybe That's like impressive. in total, maybe like two or three hours of, of going over. Um, wow. And again, this is because people like Bria show up early and are prepared, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> so, you know, that it is, it is only because um, all the people who were involved with this, right. This circus of, of weirdos that came together to make this weird movie um, were, were, were totally committed to it. So it, I guess it's not really a question as much as just boasting a little bit that we were able to do it and, and that imagine this team now, you know, given, um, even more scope to work with. And, and so I just hope, you know, we can, we can all be working on something with, with more resources and, um, really show what we're able to do and, and stretch our wings. Yeah, definitely. That's great. 2021, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, what's next for you guys? Do you think you might work together anytime in the future? I hope so. Uh, Bria reads a lot. So she's always like, this was a cool book. This was a cool short story. I love it. She knows like all the good like <laughs> sci-fi wacky stuff that I want to read and work on. <laughs> nice. Uh-huh. Um, That's great. I have a love of sci-fi that, uh, I mean, I think it's a little bit in this movie, but I think we both mm-hmm. love like, like I love hard sci-fi like like mm. I like get oh, into okay. the like uh you know I want to know how the machines work like I love yeah. that stuff and Natasha what kind of engine too. are we talking about yeah 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 <laughs> Natasha just <laughs> turns it like a you know Epstein drive what are we talking about That's <laughs> <laughs> always reading it. this stuff and being like we should adapt this one we should adapt this one so hopefully we'll find something along that that line that would be amazing that would be amazing awesome well I can't wait to see whatever it is you have True fans over here, for sure. Yeah, you do. Whatever you guys do next, we're going to be all over it. Um, And they say never meet your heroes. I disagree. This conversation was amazing. (laughs) Thank you, guys. It's been really, um, honestly, so, like, emotionally rewarding for Bria and I to be able to speak, uh, honestly, like, to all the women who really um, were able to see so deeply into the film and, and really understand what, you know, what Bria started with the script and what we brought to the finish line. So it's really a pleasure to, to speak with you guys. Oh, oh that's great. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Have an amazing day. And everybody, 
the movie hits Shutter on uh, March 4th. So clear your calendar. That's what you're doing that day. Everybody watch Lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that was our interview with Natasha and Bria. We want to thank them, first of all, for being so generous with their time and being so open about the film. And we hope that you enjoyed our interview with them as much as we enjoyed making it. Definitely. We mean it when we say check out Lucky. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And to my co-host and good friend, Ariel, production on this episode was done by yours truly and edited by Ariel. Our theme song for the show is More Deadly by DJ Sharden.